Hello, everybody. This episode is brought to you by Mubi, presenting the exclusive streaming premiere of Decision to Leave. I've seen this movie. It is awesome. This is the newest one from Park Chan-wook, the acclaimed director of Old Boy and The Handmaiden. Critics called Decision to Leave, quote, a gloriously fucked up love story. Don't miss this can prize winning triumph that is now South Korea's Academy Award submission for Best International Feature Film. Decision to Leave is available to stream next week, starting December 9th. And all you listening to this can receive a free 30 days to check it out at Mubi.com slash Fangoria. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash Fangoria. Again, I've seen this movie. It rocks. Check it out. You won't regret it. And before we get to the show, I also got to tell you a little bit about our corporate overlords over at Fangoria. This classic magazine has been at it for over 40 years and is better than ever. Not only is Fangoria highly collectible, which it is, this shit's always sells out. If you get yourself an annual subscription, it comes right to your door four times a year and each issue is filled to the brim with articles exploring every nook and cranny of genre filmmaking past present, and future, with all the most exciting journalists, filmmakers, and horror know-it-alls to guide the way, including your intrepid KingCast hosts. This high-quality writing will only ever appear within the physical pages of the magazine, so if you want to join in on the fun, you will need to subscribe. In order to do that, all you gotta do is head on over to Fangoria.com and, well, sign up. And since KingCast listeners are in the family, you can enter in the promo code KingCast at checkout to save a whopping 25% off your entire order. With all of that said, let's get on with that show. Hi. My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Well, sometimes that is better. Hello, and welcome back to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name's Scott Wampler. And I'm Eric Vespi. And we are your hosts. We've got a returning guest this week, folks, and he is returning to us with an all-new credit to his name, Director. You'll know him as Ryan Johnson's Lucky Charm, an actor who's appeared in Knives Out, Looper, Brick. Hell, today's guest even appeared in Star Wars. The Last Jedi, uh, of course, you will remember him from his iconic role of Stomeroni Stark. But now he's a big time feature film director whose blood relatives is now available to stream via Shudder. It's a very funny, very touching, very bloody uh, vampire road trip comedy that finally gives the vampire genre the Yiddish shot in the arm that it has so desperately needed. Wouldn't you agree, Eric? Oh, yeah, very much so. And speaking of vampires, this week's title is Salem's Lot. Please welcome to the KingCast stage, the man who's here to talk to us about it, Mr. Noah Sagan. Noah, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, although I I, I have to ask, is the, I mean, is the Lucky Charm uh, reference because I'm short, mm-hmm. Scott? No, 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 no. It's because I frequently see you uh, near a pot a of short gold man. or oh. wearing the, the green shorts like you like. It's true. I do so wear that. Well, you know, and I do have to admit, I, I, I am, I am pretty short, and I, and I, I have a lot of gold. Um, mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people would say I've, I've OG'd to reference one of the, uh, the best movies of all time. <laughs> well, you're in, you're in good company. I am short too. We are two short kings, I would say, hmm. and uh, I, I don't think there's, there's anything wrong with that. 
but you do look good in those green shorts. I'll say that. They make my legs look longer. Hmm. They do. They do. Very pale still, but, um, <laughs> you know, that, that's fine. We can work on that. Yeah. So blood relatives. How uh, we saw this at Fantastic Fest. I yeah. loved it. I came up to you afterwards and I was like, thank you for making a movie so good. I didn't even remotely have to lie to you about liking it. Uh, <laughs> it is so much goddamn fun. This movie. Uh, were you pleased with the response it got at Fantastic Fest? You know, um, I am. Uh, I am very pleased. I was. I was. I was pleased. You know, obviously, it was. It was a big homecoming for me and for the film. You know, we shot the movie about an hour and a half outside of Austin. We had a lot mm-hmm. of, uh, of of Austinites and Texans working on the movie, and I've been at Fantastic Fest. You know, on and off for like a dozen years. Um, So, you know, it would have been awkward if the movie had sucked and not played that fantastic (laughs) fest. That would have been truly weird. Um, Like we're not going to play the movie, but we'll, we'll get you a badge. How about that? Entirely (laughs) possible. Uh, It's frankly happened before, Uh, um, uh, uh, but not to a movie that I've directed. So here we are. And, uh, and it was lovely to be able to show it to people. Uh, And then, you know, subsequently um, with, uh, with their support, you know, we did this incredible little uh, uh, tour, uh, six cities in seven days, uh, showing Mm -hmm. people the movie. Tim League and I uh, all around the country, um, which is really special for for a movie that uh, you know uh, I never anticipated uh, people being able to see uh, in such a large group, unless it was going to mm. be you know shown like at a, like a festival or yeah or uh, you know some sort of institution where they you know, <laughs> put on a, a movie to to calm people down. Right. Now, I'm curious about you. I know that this is probably the question you get the most on this, but I'm always fascinated when uh, an actor transitions into being a director. And I know that this is, you know, having known you for a long time, that this has been something you've been doing, you've been writing, you've been you've been working towards this. So, like, what had to line up for you to actually get to make your own film? You know, it it was it was really uh the same story that you hear from every i you know <laughs> filmmaker definitely every first time filmmaker which is like a whole bunch of extra shit that I didn't think I would have to do had to happen, right? Mm-hmm. You think like, oh, I, I wrote a script and that was hard, but you know, I I think it's pretty good. And then you show it to some people and they think, oh yeah, this is this is okay. I can see this, and you think, all right, I'm on my way. But but actually, you know, uh, uh, it really came down to the you know team sport sort of aspect. I had had a relationship with Lial, uh, who uh, is our producer and produced, uh, you know, movie movies like the endless for, uh, uh, Aaron and Justin Benson Moorhead. Um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, we had been trying to work on something for a while. And then I had had this longstanding relationship with Sam over at shutter, uh, uh, which was, you know, a friendship really. I mean, we, we had met mm-hmm. when he was writing for a now defunct website, uh, at Fantastic Fest in 2009 and had just remained friends. And we thought, you know, well, listen, we like a lot of the same stuff. Let's find something to work on. But, you know, eventually it, we kind of put that together and, and then I met Josh Rubin and he sort of came on and he had kind of done this, this movie, uh, that Cheddar released, uh, scare me mm-hmm. that, in a lot of ways was sort of like a proof of concept for something like mine and that he wrote it, he directed it, he acted in it and, uh, you know, did it on, on a relatively short 
schedule for a relatively small amount of money. And so once we sort of had all those pieces together, I think it kind of felt like there there, there was a, a a shape to it. There was like a path to actually making it. Um, but it was definitely a lot of stuff that went much further beyond uh, what I thought, which was naively, oh, hey, I... I, I wrote a script, guys, you know? <laughs> you just picture you taking that script into like a, a smoky cigar smoke <laughs> office and there's like a, a a bald, fat exec in a three-piece suit with a big bag of money and a checkbook in front of him going, you got the right stuff, kid. Well, that, but like a bidding war type situation where there's like a dozen, <laughs> it would be like a dozen John Politos all sitting around, all saying, you know, I want, I'll, I'll pay more for it. No, I'll pay more for it. I'll give you, you know, 3,000 the bidders. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what was the, the most annoying, unforeseen thing that you had to deal with while shooting this? Oh boy, it was um, having Scott it, Wampler on set. Yeah, it was definitely having Scott Scott Wampler show up for uh, for for an evening. Um, unannounced, totally unannounced, just strolled right in. Um, uh, I'm glad you sold that piece, buddy. So uh, you yeah. could, you could keep your car. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you, Fangoria. By the way, yeah. Um, thank you very much, uh, folks. Um, what was the most unforeseen uh, issue? Honestly, it it was. Um, you know, it's a vampire movie, right? So you know, most of it, I would say takes place at night, but I had this really pretentious contrived filmmaker desire to do all of the night gimmicks that people do like day for night Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, rear projection for the car stuff at night, uh, which, you know, now there's not really rear projection doesn't really exist. You sort of do like led projection. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the funny thing was, is that I thought that these were all, contrivances that were going to make things easier, right? Because you're like, well, hey guys, we're not going to have to be shooting like two weeks of night straight. <laughs> right. But actually they were, they made things much more complicated and I didn't realize until we were doing them that all of these tricks, which have like existed for a hundred years, potentially to make movies easier to make actually are much more annoying than people just being like, I guess I'll stay up all night. <laughs> There's an ex- yeah. There's a lengthy sequence in the movie that's day for night. When there there the, is uh, in the yeah, there's, yeah, yeah, and it you know it's sort of like you know was was it, you know again I I, I should have read the writing on the wall when I was like hey you know I I want to find a place for day for night and you know I had all these folks that I was working with kind of going like, well, you know, I don't think we really need that. I mean, there isn't really a place where that would make sense. And then I sort of found this, I had this sequence and I was like, well, actually it sort of, I think kind of by design would work really well here. And they were, they were kind of like, well, you know, are, are you sure? I mean, we could just put it on the schedule for, you know, to shoot it overnight. And I was like, no, 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 you know, cause the sun's coming up. And so we can have the day for night and the two characters are split up. And I just, and I like, I had, that was like the worst kind of, pretentious director demand, (laughs) uh, you know, and people just sort of like, and I realized now in retrospect, it was like, it was just, it was, people were smiling and nodding. uh, And, and now here we are, but, uh, but I got my day for night, just like to catch a thief, baby. Yeah, you sure did. Is that your favorite day for night moment? I I know uh, we want to move on to Stephen King shit here soon, but uh, uh, you know, since you're a big cinephile, like I, I figured you would be the one to ask. Because, you know, I always have to go to, to Jaws, like the opening of Jaws is, is day for night. And that's the 
you know, that that's my go-to when I think of like really great day for, for night uh, moments. Well, you know, there is really great day for night. Um, there is day for night that looks really, really good. There's like, you know, John Ford day for night, which is like really cool and, and looks good. Um, uh, I wanted the effect of day for night, just like I wanted the effect of of rear projection. I wanted there to be that sort of like paper moon taxi driver driving stuff. I wanted there um, uh, uh, to be that sort of catch it, you know, catch a thief sort of silvery kind of shadowy um, uh, 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 day for night, which is a really specific look and think sort of um, accidental, frankly. Um, and so I realized after the fact that trying to recreate the accident was again, more work than actually doing things (laughs) the right way. Right. And and just for, in case anybody listening doesn't know what that means, day for night is when you shoot a night scene during the day and like through the use of like filters and, and, uh, DP using, you know, different kind of lighting tricks and f-stops and shit see i'm I'm very technical i know all this um but they they do that to make it look the ultimate image to make it look like it's a nighttime scene right Um, except there's usually stuff like shadows which of course you don't get unless there's like a ton of moonlight you know and um you know and 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 you know things that are further away look brighter than they should because at night things are bright close up but they're darker further away um and uh and in our case, you know, I, I have to admit, I mean, yes, we did sort of this traditional day for night thing that I really wanted to do, but we also had, you know, we had, we had guys with computers in Eastern Europe, guys who were like fixing it. Um, so, <laughs> like, like John Wick villains. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was, um, you know, it, you know, th- things are really dynamic over there Um, uh, they're moving into the vfx space guys interestingly yes there are a ton of folks out there who just are able to uh uh uh, you know do some nice rotoscoping for you when you need it right there's always techno blaring in the background when you call it was udo kier folks it was udo (laughs) kier doing art like the the villain's car or like the villain's son's car and the saint you know what I'm talking about? And like every time they get in that car, there's that one song playing. <laughs> anyway, well, you uh very um not so coincidentally, I would I would guess, uh pick Salem's Lot as your title here. Another another vampire story. So um first of all, uh did say we're we're gonna be focusing largely on the Toby Hooper series for this conversation, not so much the book. <laughs> Um, and I'm wondering if there's anything in, uh, Hooper's original miniseries that influenced the making of blood relatives. Funny. You should ask that Scott. (laughs) We Uh, didn't plan this by the way. (laughs) Uh, yeah, I know. It sounds like, it sounds like we, yeah, it sounds like we're following. No, we actually didn't, we actually didn't plan this (laughs) at all, but funny, funny enough there was, I mean, you know, the, 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 um, you know, the, uh, as, as you can imagine, I watched absolutely every vampire movie and every vampire piece of material that I could get my hands on. And I, I had been familiar with the, with the Hooper, uh, miniseries, um, mm-hmm. if only because I'm, I'm a King completist. Uh, but, um, you know, the thing that, that Hooper does, and it sort of speaks to all those tricks that I was talking about is that, I, I think, and, and I don't know, we can probably uh, figure it out uh, easily, but 
I don't think that Hooper had probably had the kinds of resources that he had on this miniseries in 1979 previously. So there are a lot of uh, fun mechanisms that he uses that I don't think that he would have had access to. I mean, there's stuff like, you know, like, like a lot of the, uh, uh, a lot of the sort of POV uh, vampire attacks, you know, the, the, kids mm-hmm. at the window all that stuff all that stuff you know that stuff is like shot backwards with fog mm-hmm. machines and it's really sort of um it's 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 off-putting and and grotesque in that you kind of can't look away and it's really unsettling but you sort of don't know why and there's no blood or guts so obviously it'll pass for something like sensors um and i thought a lot about that on this on on, on blood relatives which mm-hmm. you know i i I really wanted to make an accessible movie. I didn't want to make a movie that was going to be off-putting to people who maybe aren't huge uh, gore horror people. Um, and then, you know, on, on sort of a, a more macro level and to speak a little bit more towards, I think, the book and to King in general, you know, just the sort of idea that the people and the place is actually more dangerous than the scary thing that's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually think that the miniseries does a really good job of that. Like the miniseries, which is three hours long, you're like an hour into it before people start dying of vampirism. <laughs> yeah, um, right. There's like, there's sexual assault, there's domestic abuse, there's, uh-huh. you know, there's, there's, uh, uh, there's all types of kind of like scary, towny, interpersonal uh, violence going on that mm-hmm. is infinitely more, uh, 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 scary sinister? and and yes yeah, yeah. Sin- thank you sinister you should be a writer um yeah. <laughs> sinister than uh than the vampire stuff which eventually sort of devolves into like action movie territory right well th- you also seem to take a cue from from king uh in in that you're probably also you know grounding it that's the whole paper moon you know aspect to this where you know your, your vampire leads they're they're people, you know, having to deal with people things. And, and, you know, that's one of the reasons why I really like that you pick Salem's lot, because that was the big revolutionary thing about that book when it came out was, wasn't that it was a vampire tale. It was that it was a vampire tale in then contemporary America. Right. And so people, you know, the people in there, they're just the people you recognize. They're not these gothic figures that are, you know, traveling by carriage. And, you know, it's like they're they're just average blue collar people, you know. Um, the vampire threat is there. That, that's a little bit more old world, especially in the Toby Hooper version, because then then you get into the Nosferatu shit. But uh, um, uh, but yeah, I mean, that's kind of the secret sauce for King is, is like he'll take these these. Uh, you know, horror tropes and they'll, he'll just set it around people that you recognize. And well, and that was, yeah, it was so early in, in, in the, in the King bibliography. I mean, it's his, his second published book. And obviously, you know, he had published, uh, um, before that, um, he had published, he had published that. I don't know though. I don't know enough about whether he had written, but had he written Bachman books before? Yes. Uh, 74 before. Yeah. Carry, yeah, and long just not walk. Publish them. Yeah, the long walk was written before. Yeah, that's true. Before Carrie, um, I'm not sure about the rest. Honestly, I do know Long Walk was the first book that he wrote in as like a freshman in college. Uh, 
which is mind blowing because that's a, a masterpiece of a book. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. I, I know that Salem's lot is hugely important to King though, because there it's a crossroads moment and he didn't have a whole lot of those once he became established. Uh, but it was a big crossroads moment because Carrie with the movie and with the sale and all that stuff, you know, it, it kind of made him legit. And then he, he was at, he had two different books. He had blaze, which he ended up releasing later as a Bachman book. Um, uh, you know, and like way later, like after he killed Bachman, you know, then he brought him back. Uh, so he released, he had blaze and he had, um, Salem's lot and his, he was getting advice from a lot of people telling him not to publish Salem's lot because then he'll get uh, stereotyped as a horror writer. Um, but you know, it was the best of, of the two books. So he ended up going with it. Yeah. And, if he and had I think, you gone know, blaze, who knows if he would have still, you know, continued yeah. on, you know, uh, and, 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 and I, and I think, you know, what, what is so important is that it, it very much sort of sets up what we now think of not only as kind of the king mainstay but also sort of like a mainstay of uh of of horror fiction and 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 even even horror cinema which is again this sort of the insidiousness of the town and the people being um being bigger than or at least fostering the horror mechanism Right. right. Which is like, you know, people aren't really thinking about that, I think, in terms of or maybe they were in terms of uh, um, in terms of anticipating that. I think that that, you know, when you come away with it and you go, oh, my God, I'm going to study this book. What what book are you going to kind of study and tear apart this horror guy's book, this like sort of, you know, dime store paperback? Well, yeah, but, you know, it's a big hit and, you know, everybody loves it and everybody will. And it's really about how insidious people and small towns and sort of, you know, the American culture of, 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 uh, of how we treat our neighbors, so to speak, uh, can open the door to something, uh, uh, evil, you know? Right. And, uh, and I think we sort of take it for granted. And, and frankly, I think, I think that, that Hooper really, uh, nailed that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I revisited this, the, uh, the miniseries uh, for the first time in a very long time. Uh, I'm not even sure that I rewatched it on the other occasions that we covered Salem's lot on the show. It's mm-hmm. been a long time since we talked about this one. Yeah. Um, but I don't, I, I don't think I completed a viewing of it uh, back then or was halfway paying attention or something. Um, anyway, I thought it really fucking held up. Um, and I, I think that, it's kind of rickety and you know, I've got issues with some of the pacing and you know, there's it's, it's far from perfect, but um, I was really struck this time by what a time capsule it is. Oh yeah. The late seventies and like the clothes, the fucking interior design on some of the, just like some of the wallpapers and shit that appear in this movie (laughs) are just real knockouts. And I was just gawking at it uh, when I watched it again the other night, I could not get over that element of it apparently it's now that it's old enough now where i'm clocking it for those reasons rather than anything else (laughs) well there's that there's also the fact that it's uh it had that tv made for tv uh feel of that era which you know if you look at something like duel for instance or whatever where it's still quasi cinematic but not Mm -hmm. it's really this very unique thing in that like 
mid to late 70s, early 80s TV movie. I guess it's, you know, you can thank the proliferation of recording on video or something later on, you know, that... Uh, uh, you know, for for the difference in the look, but the, the one thing that it also does is it casts people uh, who all seem like they're like forty seven year olds in every role, including the kid. <laughs> you know, there's just something that it always strikes me when I see Mark Petrie in that he just he looks like that uh, dude that's not Arnold Schwarzenegger. What's yeah. his name? You know what I'm talking about? That was like yeah. the bad guy in Cobra. In the- that was like that was like such like a that was such a, a thing of that era. I think because people just like didn't use like people didn't moisturize or use sunscreen. <laughs> right. You know where you'll be like you know you'll see like you'll see some some uh, uh, some photo of like Jack Nicholson in 1975 and you know it'll be like you know here's you know the sexiest movie star on earth and he like doesn't have any hair he's got a (laughs) gut you know his like skin looks like leather and he's just like hanging out like smoking a cigarette like drinking a martini and he looks looks absolutely great but then it's like jack nicholson 32 years old (laughs) (laughs) but what's so i mean but at the same time it's like you also have james mason who Uh you know I mean, in 1979, James Mason would have been like the equivalent to, I don't know, would it be like an Ian McKellen today or like a Patrick Mm. Stewart, like this sort of like great lion of, you know, stage and screen sort of showing up for your pop culture uh, uh, moment. And, you know, you can just tell that they're that like Hooper is using every single frame of film that he shot of him. Like, I mean, (laughs) you know even like the death scene where he like doesn't cut away and just lets him kind of like fall down, like like, <laughs> yep. like a full flight of stairs over the course yep. of like 45 seconds. <laughs> yep. Yeah, no, it does. It has a little bit of that, uh, not, not to draw uh, quality comparisons, but it has a little bit of that, uh, you know, plan nine from outer space, Ed Wood, thing where you're going to use every frame of Bella Lugosi that you have. Right. And it does. It feels like that there are moments where he's just like walking to his car at the beginning of this and he like <laughs> right. stops and he hesitates and he senses something and he looks off and then he gathers himself and, you know, straightens his, his suit and then gets in the car, you know, like little moments like that. You don't see that anymore. Like, I guess it's an attention span thing, but you know, uh, it's if you have a character you know walking from a house to a car it's like you'll see the per the character nowadays you know exit the house and the next cut he's, he's in the car like you don't get that transition moment which might you know be some of the pacing issues that scott had with with the movie um but yeah no it's it's a really fascinating era and i really like that what you were saying about how this is Toby Hooper getting to play with a budget and play with stuff that he hasn't really gotten to play with before. And you can sense that he's having fun doing that. Um, and uh, there, there's a lot of moments that stand out. The The camera is, is moving a lot in this, in this thing. Like it's you just from a filmmaking perspective, like a technical perspective, he is being much more dynamic here than he would even later on in his, his career. You know, it's, it, you can tell that it's like a young, excited filmmaker playing with some toys here. Yeah. I mean, he, he had resources that, I mean, you know, looking at his, at his filmography, I mean, you know, he had done, he had done chainsaw and then he had done, uh, uh, eaten alive, which I have yeah. to admit I have never seen. It's um, kind of rough that one. 
I haven't seen yeah, that. Yeah, I, I that's can, the one with I the can, alligator, right? Yeah, yeah. I can yeah. only imagine um, that um, that it uh, it has <laughs> it has like eighteen producers, which is always a good sign. Um, <laughs> Uh, um, but, uh, you know, yeah, he had never really had, I think these, these kinds of resources and, and, um, you know, and, and I think he, he kind of uses every part of, of, of the animal here. Uh, you know, there's nothing is left on the table there. uh, Apparently there, there was a, uh, theatrical cut of yeah. the um uh, of the miniseries and I'm, I, i'd be interested to see that i wonder who cut it i i can i i can't imagine that toby cut it but maybe he did uh if anybody knows well, I know please they, let me know i know they shot extra scenes for it because it, they they kind of did what they did with duel where duel was an american made for tv movie that played on tv but then they released it theatrically they made a cut uh, for theatrical release overseas and they did the same thing with this and so they actually shot scenes that are bloodier and gorier you know that could be uh released as a horror movie you know and, and i think the horror movie cuts like 110 something minutes versus the three hours here so i yeah i've no i've never seen it either i don't know what they cut and what they didn't um but, you know, I did uh, find a nice little bit of trivia here where they actually released this as Phantasm 2 uh, in, in like Italy and some other markets because Phantasm did such a was such a like a international like drive in kind of success, uh, which I think is very interesting because the movie has nothing to do with Don Coscarelli's Phantasm. But there are little hints where I can see where they'd make that jump, like the kids at the window and the backward f- photography. And it gets like this nightmarish you know, uh, you know, what reality. did they release Phantasm 2 as? <laughs> Salem's Lot. Yeah, Salem's Lot for sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. It took a while for Phantasm 2 to come out. So so maybe maybe they'd forgotten there was already a Phantasm 2 in Italy. Phantasm 2.2. I didn't one see this things- one until much later in life, I don't mm. think. Because it was before my time when it aired. And yeah. And I just always remember seeing the the box for it at like Blockbuster and mm-hmm. shit. That the uh, the cover with um, Barlow sort of looming over the house, you know, and he's in right. silhouettes. Uh, yeah, yeah, pretty iconic image. Um, and I I remember seeing it at the at that Blockbuster like home video stores like over and over and over again, but never really being that interested in it. Probably because I've never really been much of a much of a vampire guy. Right. But, um, I don't think I don't I don't think I saw this till I was in my twenties, maybe. Which is interesting, given what a huge title it is. Right. And I wonder what version of it was on those shelves because I don't recall it being like a double VHS thing. Right. So was that the movie cut? It must have been. It must have been the uh, the movie hmm. cut. Could be, or really, really, <laughs> or just degraded L- LP, version of yeah, LP setting um. yeah. <laughs> of the other. Um, yeah, I don't know. I I don't recall ever seeing the movie cut, and I would have watched it that way. I think the first time, you know, I, I probably hit it from the or not hit it, but I probably saw rented it, you know, and saw it that way uh, because I, you know, like like you, this is just a little bit before my time, but the. Uh, it's really interesting though, because we keep, you know, on the show, we always talk about how for our generation, the it miniseries is like Mm -hmm. a big keystone moment for 
you know, King fans of, of our age. Right. And that, that was something everybody talked about. It scared the shit out of all the kids and, you know, it was kind of a cultural moment, but I, Salem's lot was that for the generation right before mine, you know, like I'm, I'm a very old millennial, I guess, cause I was born in 81. Like I'm right on that cusp, but I think for like gen, gen X that like, this is the, yeah, you know, this is the thing that, that really like traumatized them as kids. This was uh, maybe... also, yeah, this was a really big, you know, I, I mean, we're, we, you know, it's, it's easy enough to sort of, you know, tear it apart and kind of, you know, uh, uh, um, talk about academically and even laugh at some of it. But, but I mean, this was a really big deal. Like this yeah. was a big hit series um, and kind of watershed. And, and, and I, I think probably in a lot yeah. of ways, um, you know, opened up a lot of King to people um, because it wasn't, you know, when we think of like the Stephen King film adaptations, they were happening so close to the release of the movies. It was sort of something like, like, you know, that, that, that we don't, we don't see a lot, you know, we see a lot of like, you know, you always hear about like, books that languish with good reason for like decades before they're adapted into middling movies. But we had sort of a string of King adaptations that hit really big. Some of which of course are like total masterpieces and some of which are movies that are like still like cultural touchstones like this. And it's also worth mentioning that this is, there was a huge gap between Carrie and the next movie adaptation of King stuff. Right there, Carrie was what seventy six, I think. Yeah, seventy six is was Carrie, um, and then this came out in seventy nine, and there was no movie in between. And then, then right after this, it became The Shining, you know, The Shining in eighty, and then you have the whole run of of uh, of there being like two or three Stephen King adaptations every year, all throughout the eighties. You know, the Cujos and Dead Zones and Christines and Children's of the Corns and stand by me's and you know, all that stuff. So, so this wasn't a very kind of languishing period for, for, for King, I guess he, he had to start his, uh, his backlog of stuff for people to adapt. He had to start pumping those out. And so this is like that era, those three or four years where he was also knocking out some of his best books, you know, that's like the shining and stand and not stand by me, the shining and, uh, uh, the stand and, um, you know, dead zone it's like you know this is where he's just kind of like all right here's my time to prove myself and he just like knocks out masterpiece after masterpiece one of the things that that i'm constantly fascinated by especially being uh married to a television uh writer and producer is that up until the advent of home video and cable television no matter how successful your movie was which played for you know a relatively short period of time, probably in a theater, you know, it probably wasn't immediately on TV. It definitely wasn't, you know, able to be viewed at home. So, you know, you would have these TV events. It was normal for like 20 or 30 million people to watch something on TV on any given, you know, special weekend. So, you know, something like, like Salem's Lot, I mean, probably in a lot of ways was more, this miniseries was probably got King in front of more eyes than anything else had, even after Carrie or, you know, a, a sort of meteoric, the meteoric rise of, 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 mm-hmm. of the previous few years. 
I wish there was, I'm looking to see if there's anything about viewership on the uh, Wikipedia page for this, and I'm not finding anything. But I believe it's not on Wikipedia, then it doesn't exist. So yeah, true, 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 true. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure it was huge. Like it it, it makes sense just from like anecdotally from us talking with people uh, again, like of like the Mick Garris generation or whatever. It's like everybody that we talked to that was there kind of at the beginning of King's Rise, they all cite like, like, oh, yeah, and Salem's Lot scared the fuck out of me. There's that just thing that, like, it just doesn't exist anymore with where you can have this, like, multiple generational event, right? Uh, you know, I guess that the Marvel movies maybe come close, but it's like, the you know, when, when you talk about something like The Stand or... Uh, it or Salem's Lot like that that was something that was the water cooler thing like adults watched it with their kids and kids watched it you know with their friends and teenagers watched it and grandparents watched it you know it was just like everybody was tuned in for for that all attention was focused there it's like we just don't have those cultural touchstones even something as like massive as like Stranger Things for instance it's like it's all over pop culture but it's it's got its audience and it's it's not, you know, maybe the secretaries at work or whatever will have heard of this, but you, the, you know, nurses, the secretaries and the at work. <laughs> well, you know, I'm trying to think of like, you know, like the like the people at the DMV or something that are just there to like input information or whatever that just don't give a fuck about anything. And maybe, you know, they they go, you know, I mean, everybody has their own stuff, but it, the point is that everybody's like kind of has their thing now they have their alley and they don't really deviate from that you're either the person who like spend my weekends watching sports and nothing else or i spend my you know weekends going to the movies or i spend my weekends you know watching reality tv on netflix or whatever it's like that's everything's like just because you have the option to watch whatever you want you like there there isn't those focused moments anymore no this was like this was an era where there were three channels on tv (laughs) and this was on one of them the week of thanksgiving in 1979 so literally everybody was home and this was one of three things you could watch you know and i think like you know we talked about james mason but i mean like david soul was like a huge star at the time. I mean, Starsky and Hutch again, like, you know, right. when you think about, about like, um, things, seventies iconography. Yeah. I mean, everybody watched Starsky and Hutch. Right. Um, and, and so, you know, to, to sort of, to have, to have Hutch <laughs> right at the end of that run, you know, was, was, was kind of a, a big deal. I'm sure, you know, people like David soul, you know, uh, he was, he was cool. Speaking of David soul, what do you, what do you feel about him? in this role. I've got my own opinions, but I'll wait until you win. Yeah. I'll, I mean, I'll say that I think that, that soul sort of suffers from, you know, the casting of soul, I should say sort of suffers from the same thing that every kind of King totem, Gollum, whatever you want to call it, you know, the, the, the <laughs> when, Gollum. <laughs> well, you know, but that's the idea is that it's like, you know, every single one of these, characters uh whether you know whether it's 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 mirrors or whether it's torrents you know i mean you sort of have all of these placeholders for king himself and Mm -hmm. in the books they're all very obviously built on himself and they sort of have kind of his 
how do I say this in a, in a kind way, sort of, you know, the perceived inherent nerdiness. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, just, you know, it's, you know, they're, they're vulnerable. They're, they're, they're real. <laughs> and I think that, you know, when you're casting a movie and you have an opportunity to cast like, you know, a really sexy sort of, you know, classic hero protagonist, well, you're going to take advantage of that. You're going to get your Nicholson, you're going to get your soul. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't know if it necessarily serves, the intended purpose mm. as well. Not that I think soul does a bad job. Um, right. But you know, when soul kind of like, you know, when he, when he rides up or, or even at the end when he kind of like, you know, when he just like randomly picks a lock, you're like, okay, I guess I believe this. I guess I believe that this like, <laughs> kind of superhero moment can happen with this guy. I don't know. What do you think, Scott? I think he's, I think, I don't know the character of Ben Mears to me, and maybe I'm just imagining this, but I under I understood that character to be more of a, like a bookworm type dude, yeah. which isn't to say that he can't be handsome, but just maybe a little, a little more wormy. You know what I'm saying? Like a little, a little yeah. nerdier. This guy yeah, is he, like, it's yeah. fucking Hutch, you know, <laughs> with his flowing golden locks and his chiseled <laughs> jaw. Like it's, it feels weird to me to have a guy like that playing that character. So it feels a little yeah miscast to me. But yeah, I definitely don't buy him as a writer. Like he, right. there's just something about him that doesn't scream author to me. Um, yeah. Doesn't need to be, you know, uh, somebody who's stereotypically Stephen King, you know, from that era, you know, unibrow with the the thick glasses and the buck teeth and, you know, whatever the, the kind of jokey version of a writer. But I mean, that's kind of one of the things I'm most curious about in the Gary Dauberman movie coming out because he cast uh, Lewis Pullman as Ben mm-hmm. Mears, which is way more in line with with that kind of, as you called him, bookwormy character. You yeah, know? there was a rumor going around at one point that Jake Gyllenhaal was going to get that role. And I could see that. I could see them sort of put, just putting glasses on him. You know, right. How, how you nerdify uh, Jake Gyllenhaal. <laughs> right. Just throw some glasses on him, dress him down a little bit. He's Make him lose like, some weight. Yeah. F- like profoundly fucking handsome i think i well, like I think how I told- great would how great would like uh would like a jesse plemons mirrors yeah. be you right. know like just like a guy who you really feel like you could push around no offense to jesse plemons who is one of our great uh great actors of our generation but i do feel like there is like like what if you give me a guy who you know or um oh man great 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 actor and i'm having a a senior moment here oh um we can edit. Let's figure out who this is. We Give us some clues. It. We can edit it out. Uh, uh, edit oh, around. it's all staying edit- in. Oh no, because I, 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 I don't. Give us clues, like- damn you. No, because I, 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 I don't want it to seem like I can't remember Paul Walter Hauser's name because I, I'm <laughs> such a huge fan of his. But like, how great would he be as Mears in, 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 in terms of you know just having this guy who's sort of like he's he number one he doesn't seem like a hero he actually seems like a guy who you know who who is a real person um but also is he sort of playing both sides against the middle a little bit here you know because there is sort of that question and the book does a very good job of this you know more so than than the miniseries where you are sort of wondering like are there ulterior motives for mirrors coming back um, mm. because in the, in the miniseries, you just sort of acknowledge that he kind of comes back because, you know, he sort of senses something in the town, which of course is like, you know, such a strong King, uh, uh, tableau, right. You know, I've returned because I've been drawn to it, right. um, which is basically all he says in the miniseries. Uh, which is weird. Cause I, I do like the concept of 
uh, in the book, it's way more established. I, he I, he has that. He does have like the conversation at the bar where he talks about you know having gone in the house as a kid, which is some of the best part of the book, in my opinion. Is is that uh, it's the most shining esque? I guess it's the most uh, pure Stephen King thing where you like get the point of view of the kid going through the Marsden house and seeing QB Marsden in the attic, you know, hung by his neck and the ghost staring at him and. And all that. I do like the idea of of there being like this horror author that's drawn, you know, that had that traumatic, like real life horror experience. And he's wanting to pull on that for his his book or whatever. I think that's that's a really cool thing. But yeah, in the in the miniseries, it's almost incidental. It's just the author returning home. Um, Yeah. And it's sort of like alluded to in this, you know, oh, my wife died. Like, it's very like, you know, it's there, there isn't a there isn't a lot there to kind of get him back to the town and there definitely isn't sort of that sense of kind of like, I have to be here even if I don't want to, Um, which, you know, again, with that sort of reluctant heroism angle, you're, you know, you're by the time you get to, you know, whatever, I I don't know if you'd call it the last act or like the last hour, it does sort of just feel like you're watching Hutch do an action movie thing you know what i mean you're just watching (laughs) him he's kicking ass and he's going to the house and oh no his girlfriend's following him and he's got to defend his girlfriend and you know but but it doesn't really own it because you know there's like a point right before uh mason dies where they're in the house and i feel like it's it's like bonnie bedelia just sort of like kind of gets like pushed to the ground and he kind of like goes to help her and doesn't get to her. Like there's not, there's not like any action. It's sort of just like, it's like people kind of falling down a bunch of times and that's kind of <laughs> right. the end of the movie, you know? Right. I find it disconcerting that, that the kid that plays Mark Petrie looks so much like David soul, I guess. Uh, yes. Yeah. I mean, he looks like a mini me David soul. <laughs> Like with the everybody hair and everything. Everybody like that in the late 70s, though. Uh, yeah. Fair enough, I guess. Yeah, I I, I kind of did some math because when I was rewatching it, I'm like, well, how old is this kid? Because he's supposed to be playing like 12, right? Right. And I'm like, he's a 40-year-old man. Yeah, he's built like a 40-year-old man, but he's got like teenage acne. So I'm just like, like, wh- where does this kid exist? Did he go through the jaunt? Like, what? Like, why is he <laughs> both young and old at the same time? Um, because everybody and- was everybody was malnourished. <laughs> <That's> nobody, <laughs> nobody had sunscreen. I mean, you know, this yeah. was like I mean, this the, was but an the era. Glick- yeah. The Glick kids look like kids. Like, what? What is it about the? And it like I I did the little math on it, and the dude was like seventeen or something when he shot. Oh, he looks older than that. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, and li- I mean, listen, he, you know, I've seen pictures of him as a as a grown man. He's he, he's a perfectly normal looking dude, and you know, I don't mean to to body shame <laughs> a, a, a seventy <laughs> a seventeen year old, but uh, but it it is it adds a little bit to the overall kind of eerie tone of this thing where it's just like David soul is kind of out of place. The Mark Petrie is kind of out of place, you know, like you can't really put your, your finger on, uh, yeah. I mean the weird like touches of this thing, like, you know, Fred Willard, silk red, you know, I mean, underwear. Yeah, can we, we've been know, dancing like, around the Fred Willard of it all. I yeah, mean, Fred like, Willard yeah. showing up anywhere, but also showing up and being, relatively underutilized i mean like i i i sort of he's 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 really sympathetic you know he's not like a guy even though he's sort of even though he's like 
cucking that dude. Even though he's, yeah, he's cucking the dude. I mean, it's like you're kind of like, well, it's no harm, no foul. It's really not on you, buddy. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> he's just uh, trying to make his way. He's not like a. He's not even. He's not even like a dishonest realtor. You know, right. like there's really an opportunity there to sort of dance around the house, and 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 it's kind of lost. You know. Yeah. Yeah, you get somebody who's as like just inherently funny as Fred Willard and you have him play the adultering realtor, you know, straight man character. It's another thing. It's just it's a bizarre, lots of bizarre choices that like ultimately build this tone. Um, A nice uh, funny aside here is the 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 woman that he's having an affair with uh, was married to James Cromwell in real life. I think they got a divorce. No, James Cromwell. James Cromwell. Yeah, James Cromwell. James Mason's wife is Ralphie Glick's mother. Oh, uh, but James Crom the 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 redhead that's like cheating on her her uh, fat husband with Fred Willard. Uh, she was married to James Cromwell, who then later played Father Callahan in in the uh, the other miniseries with Rob Lowe, the other shine, uh, Salem's Lot miniseries. Yeah, that's fucking weird. Yeah, bizarre, huh? So yeah, digest that, absorb yeah, that, do sit, with that information that as second. you will. It's interesting that this spawned a sequel, uh, mm. Larry Cohen's uh, a Return to Salem's Lot, a few years Which later. Which I have not, I have not seen. Neither uh, have I. Me neither. But it's a, it was a, a, a theatrically released sequel to this miniseries. I don't think I can think of another example of something like that happening. Hmm. Well, Roots Two, uh, that was that was a very successful. No, no, no. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Like, uh, the I mean, there's been like TV adaptations of yeah, you know, where there's been TV series, but like nothing that I can think of that's like and now the direct sequel to a miniseries. I'd be curious to see it. Apparently, it's screened at Cannes, and apparently, it's it's just bonkers. Which, if it's Larry Cohen, you know, from that era, of course, it's got to be. But uh, uh, but yeah, I've seen clips of it, and apparently, there's a a, a cursing kid in it that just is compl- like always just throwing in like the most vulgar language in random scenes, which makes me really want to watch it. It was, it was eight years later, which is, uh, I mean, incredible in terms of just what were you guys, who, who thought of this at that point? Like, you know what I mean? I mean, I I can answer that actually, because Larry Cohen was one of the people that uh, wrote one of the early scripts for the first Salem's lot. And they didn't go with his script. And then years later, the studio came back to him and was like, um, you know, uh, they wanted him to do some other thing or invited him to pitch on something and uh, some other project they were working on. And uh, he was like, well, how about I just write a sequel to Salem's Lot? And then he wrote the script. I, I guess I'm imagining that he probably incorporated some of what he had originally into the new version. You know, um, I guess he was inspired by Our Town in writing it um <laughs> i right. should should really check that out samuel fuller oh yeah the sam, sam yeah is sam F- the, the sam the fuller, sam fuller. yeah it was the sam fuller yeah in return to salem's lot the the noted and iconic director samuel fuller all right before, yeah before now we I gotta for- watch that shit scott before I forget, guys, I, I also have to say um, to plug another film that has recently come out that's very important, uh, a movie called Mr. Organ. 
Yes. Uh, by my friend uh, and 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 uh, guy who I'm a, a huge fan of, Dave Ferrier, uh, who's a um, uh, documentarian. He made uh, Tickled. He has a new movie called Mr. Organ. And the guy that Mr. Organ is about is serving like such James Mason vibes. Holy shit, um, you're right. Right? It's like, I mean, it, 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 like the dovetail between Mr. Organ and James Mason uh, as Straker, um, it, it really did sort of make for a double feature. We got a sidebar huh. on Mr. Organ for a second here, though. Let's do that, it. Let's do it. Like, Dave, I, I've, I known, I've, known, I've known David for, for years now. Like, um, he and I met on Twitter or something, gave friendly on that. He, he, uh, he guessed it on the previous podcast I did. He's been on this show a couple of times. Love him. Uh, and he was at Fantastic Fest with Mr. Organ, and I was, I was going to see it, and then I got COVID and had to leave. So mm. I had to catch it later. Um, I thought, man, I thought that one was fucking hard to watch. Like it's he goes so far down this rabbit hole and it just fucking shattered him. And I I think it was it was difficult, uh, you know, being friendly with the guy to see him going through that shit in the fucking movie and realizing that this guy was just completely running his show. Um, it's also not his you know, it, it it's such a departure from uh, David's personality which is that he's like kind of right. a really easygoing guy and he kind of has this great ability that investigative journalists have to sort of you know everything is kind of like water off a duck's back and you right. know when you watch tickled and you watch uh dark tourist uh you really feel like he is fearless and like he sort of comes from this vibe this this environment and this kind of mentality where it's sort of like well what's the worst that could happen right and he kind of keeps going and that sort of like makes you as the audience sort of feel like you're along for the ride and the conceit of mr organ is that he is genuinely terrified and, yeah. and sort of stuck <laughs> um and and uh, you know it was you know at first you kind of feel like is this filmmaking is this sort of you know how he's telling the story and if you're lucky enough to be friends with the guy or to at least you know see him talk about it and 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 i was i was there at fantastic fest when we watched it for the first time in 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 a in a you know with an audience and he's genuinely like i'm scared of what's gonna happen now yeah um, i would and, be too that guy's a fucking lunatic well, and but I gotta say, I mean, counterpoint. I don't feel like that guy is more of a lunatic than any of the tickled people, and definitely not any more of a lunatic than like half of the people who he would go and visit at you know during Dark Tourist, who were like, yeah. oh yeah, I just I just killed a guy five minutes ago with this gun that I'm showing you right now. Do you want to go get some tea? Um, and, and that was like kind of like the conceit of dark tourist over and over again was like you want to see a hey kid you want to see a dead body and um, and and yet it was something about mr oregon really gets him and and just to you know pull it back i mean that's kind of the vibe that mason has mm. you know even before you meet barlow or even before you kind of know what barlow's up to is this guy with this like weird mid-atlantic accent who's kind of like please enjoy my treasures you know what i mean <laughs> he's very silky he reminds me of uh, ian mcshane in the john wick movies mm. you know like kind of comes in classes up the joint whenever he's on screen yeah he's got that distinctive voice you're talking about there's like about. a 20 minute there's like a 20 minute sequence where mason is like 
please don't mess up my suits. They're very nice suits. I understand that if you would like to test them for forensic evidence, uh, you may, but I expect them back in better condition than I provide them to you here on their beautiful hangers made of silk and other fine materials. Like, he just really is. It's not just chewing the scenery. It's like the commitment to who the guy is. Yeah, I'd also like to point out that he basically invents the concept of layaway. Right. Like, like James Mason at some point is there's like an entire there's an entire sequence a scene where he's like, uh, "Madam, if you would like this beautiful treasure that is a fine Fabergé egg of uh, great importance and provenance, I may keep it on the side." For a period of time until you wish to save the money to purchase it. And it's like, we're already, Barlow is already cooking, guys. Barlow is already popping out. But you've got a dude who is fully invested in making sure that his antique business thrives in this town that he's about to fucking totally destroy. That's a great point. Uh, And I should also add that apparently James Mason was so gung-ho for this that he was so excited to do this movie like every story that i've heard about him doing this thing is he was like giddy as a schoolboy getting to do this which makes me love james mason even more i would pay an endless amount of money to i would i would just give you a line of credit to be there on the day that they shot the chow scene (laughs) <laughs> when james mason is so there's like there's a scene and and you know the constable shows up to you know sort of you know start this you know question you know are, are, are you the guy are you the reason why the kid's missing you know what i mean yeah. um and uh and and any any you know very straight face sort of says you know all right well I, i'm gonna go but i'm gonna keep my eye on on you straker and james mason says ciao constable and, and 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 the the cop goes like he's like what what is that word and he goes it's an Italian word for goodbye and <laughs> and he goes I didn't know you were Italian and James Mason says I'm not but the word is and it's <laughs> yeah. and, you're, and you're like is this is, was this whole thing ad-libbed is there is it just to like make fun of this of this concept of this sort of like european the scary european he's not even eastern european it's not even like a it's not even anti-semitic it's really just like a fancy person it's really just we hate fancy people he's a fancy lad yeah it's a class issue for sure uh well you canceled yeah so we've been talking about Barlow a little bit here or there, but like that, that has to come up in any discussion on the Toby Hooper version, because that is the radical departure from mm-hmm. the book is in the book. Barlow's a guy. He's just a vampire. He's like Count Dracula. Right. And right. he's like a charismatic, you know, guy who talks And Toby Hooper said, fuck all that. We're going to make him Nosferatu. He's a hissing monster. <laughs> and, uh, and I think that that in a lot of ways, it's actually a pretty good choice, especially for a miniseries where, you know, you need something like obviously supernatural, right? Yeah, I like that change, honestly. Yeah. No, you got an opinion? I think it works really well because Mason Straker is chewing the scenery so much. So he really does feel like a familiar, you know what I mean? Like the idea that Straker really does have to do all of this work uh, to sort of satisfy this monster as opposed to kind of like working 
in conjunction with him. You know, there's it doesn't feel like there's like a buddy system at all. It feels like Mason as Straker is like absolutely having to do all this shit for basically like a ferret. <laughs> and it's a cool look it's a, i mean i it, it's it's iconic for a reason there's a you know i think that they did like a count and it's like 60 seconds of actual on-screen time for for the vampire the main vampire the barlow creature uh so through most of it you just have to feel his presence you know it works better that he's a monster than yeah. just another guy it also goes away to, towards explaining, you know, the, uh, you know, the obvious mystery of why Mason is like, you know, stalling for time whenever people come by looking for for Barlow. Right. You know? And it just sells all that a little bit more. Like, of course, he's going to have to do that if that's that's what your boy looks like. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, he's also like Barlow's also like fully useless and 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 uh, um uh, uh, very um, fragile in the way that I think like we don't associate with sort of modern vampires, right? Like, you know, right. not only is he sort of physically fragile, but because of the makeup and sort of because we're kind of dancing around him the whole time, by the, by the time we get to the point where like beefy Captain America protagonist David Soul is like <laughs> going to drive a stake through his heart. And then he kind of does, he sort of like, he struggles a little bit. He kind of scratches him with his nails. You might, even like see a nail kind of fall off like it's like a lee press on situation and then he kind of just goes and you know and, and that's it yep uh yeah so you need to have that threat that feeling of like well is at least gross to touch you know if he's not going to be physically <laughs> intimidating right yeah yeah no i mean it's but there is a good thing with, as you mentioned with Straker, the way he builds him up, he's his hype man for, for Barlow. And then that all kind of culminates in that scene, which is still, I think one of my favorite scenes in the book and in the, the movie where it, it starts off as just like, well, here's a scene where we're going to gather and talk about things. And then suddenly there's a fucking vampire in the kitchen. Right. Yeah. And, and, and you're like, Oh shit, you, we should be safe. There's a preacher here. There's a priest here. And you know, what do vampires hate more, you know, the most in the world or, you know, priests, they have holy water and crosses. Right. And then you have that moment where it's just like, no, none of that shit works here. Like your, your faith doesn't hold up to, to my masters. Right. And that to me is like, I, I think my favorite scene in the, in the miniseries is. Well, is and I, and I think, I think that's also a really, really cool aspect is to sort of like, think that you've got the vampire shit figured out and then you don't at all. Yeah. You know, it's like completely, it actually is completely useless. It's like, wait, the, you know, that, that rule doesn't apply to me, which I think is, is something that people find really fun about vampire stories in general is kind of like right. which of the which of the rules are we going to pick and choose here? Yeah, which is done in like Lost Boys as well. The whole garlic thing in Lost Boys where they're just yeah. like, no, the garlic shit doesn't work, but holy water does. Yeah, well, and not yeah. to not to not to pitch my own, uh, not to get high on my own supply here, but like yeah. that was such a big thing in Blood Relatives was you know sort of like which of the rules are we going right. to apply here, and you know and 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 sort of you know. I, you know, I got to kind of build my own little sandcastle there. And of course, with like, with, with the kid, you know, it's a father daughter vampire story and the daughter is 
is half a vampire, so I got I got to do blade rules for her, right? right. Like Daywalker, Daywalker shit. For sure. And yeah. then there's also stuff which we kind of do make sort of very obvious, like he doesn't have reflections and he doesn't show up in photos and the sun, you know, he, the sun does hurt him. But then there's stuff like he keeps on asking to be invited in. And I sort of just found that to be like a great use of neuroses. It's like total <laughs> Jewish neuroses. Like we don't want to find out what happens if he's not invited in. I don't want to know what happens. You know, I don't want to, uh, all this other stuff is true. So I don't even want to test that one. You know what I mean? Right. There's a, that's another great little moment in like, uh, let the right one in, like where they, they say what happens when you don't invite a vampire in. Like I, th- that is the fun thing. Like I'm kind of with Scott. I think vampires as a general rule can be kind of a boring monster. Uh, but like, that is kind of fun. They have so many little like myths and rules that you can bend or pick apart, you know? So I think the, the very best of the vampire, uh, tales are the ones that like make you question those rules. So uh, that's why that scene in Salem's lot works. It's why blood relatives works, you know, that, that, that comes, that's the fun part of the, thank you, Eric. You're welcome. You see how I did that? Blood relatives is unlike any other vampire movie I've seen. I'm burnt the fuck out on vampire stuff. And I, I I mean, I, you know, I'd been to the set and I'd talked to Noah about the movie. I had a good idea, like what it was going to be like uh, before I saw it. But, you know, it felt to me like a movie that only Noah could have made. It's it feels like so intrinsic to you. Um, Just how much personal shit you brought to the table on this one. And the vampire mythology stuff is almost secondary to everything else going on in the movie. But the vampire stuff is also really strong. So it's like, I don't know. It was cool to have a vampire movie worth getting excited about again, because it's been a fucking long time since I've seen one. Mm. I can't even remember the last time I saw a vampire movie that I was just crazy for. Maybe only lovers left alive. Mm. How long ago was that now? Like eight years or something. Right. Anyway. Good job. Well, I, uh, I appreciate that. I mean, I, I, I think it did, you know, it does sort of operate kind of on these two tracks that it can sort of operate on independently where you have like a vampire story and then you also have, you know, a father daughter sort of family story. And of course, you know, they, they, they intertwine, but when you're able to sort of have that distinction you, I, uh, got to, um, got to decide sort of where they intersect. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. but so much of that was, you know, the boring stuff to people who like, don't care about a family comedy, um, uh, uh, was, was being able to really look at the vampire lore that I did want to draw from and then, get all of the, all of the, all of the, the, all of the trash away. You know, I really did get to sort of say, Hey, listen, these are the, this is the vampire shit that I want to talk about. And this is the vampire shit that I don't want to talk about. Um, and, uh, Hey, listen, folks, that's autourism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's just, uh, you, Joel Schumacher and Toby Hooper up there in in the echelon there with vampire, <laughs> vampire, Tony auteurs. Scott as well claire denis well, sh- <laughs> that's way too highbrow that it, it ruins my joke when you what when about you romero yeah. oh it, Mar- martin's incredible martin's is such a great movie too yeah I'll, I'll give you romero that's good you got blood relatives on shutter hopefully everyone has watched it by now or they will check it out after hearing this episode 
Multiple um, times. And, Every click counts, folks. <laughs> I suspect we may also be seeing you in another movie that's uh, coming along very your, soon. Uh, your suspicions may be founded, Scott. <laughs> yes. I'd, uh, uh, as I put on my James Mason uh, uh, voice, um, <laughs> let me introduce you, you like to, to speculate yes. on my casting in Glass Onion. Um, A knives Out Mystery. Yes. <laughs> all right, let me ask you this. Uh, is the next one going to be called something A Knives Out Mystery? Are they all going to say A Knives Out Mystery after the? I guess. I don't know. That's kind of like a, that's kind of like. A, a, Shouldn't it be a, a Benoit Blanc mystery? It should be a Benoit Blanc mystery. Listen, I don't do. Uh, <laughs> if I was, if I was in charge of marketing, do you think that I would be here doing my <laughs> seventh episode of the King Cast? Um, <laughs> um, obviously, I'm not the guy to to ask. I don't know Me how don't. they ended up with. Uh, I don't know how they ended up with that. I do know that you know. Uh, obviously, Knives Out is, in retrospect, a. Um, uh, a song title reference, Glass Onion, definitely is. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I I, I, I imagine uh, our boy is going to go for the hat trick. Right. Yes. I was surprised Dragula is going to be. I was surprised it wasn't a Billy Joel uh, song title on this one. <laughs> I never would have guessed. Italian restaurant, uh, a <laughs> <Benoit Blanc> mystery. <laughs> Only the good, only the good die young. I mean, there are some good ones there. Big yeah. shot. I mean, you know, you could, you know, Down Easter uh, Alexa, a Down Easter mystery. Alexa. Yeah, yeah. River of Dreams, a Benoit Blanc <laughs> mystery. <laughs> well, um, is there anything you want to say about that, or you just want to keep your trap shut on? on you know, all, all I think I should say for those who have not seen the movie is that. Um, you know, what I contributed to this particular uh, experience was really just a little bit of art imitating life um, mm. in terms of, of my trek to beautiful coastal uh, central Europe. Very well. Mm. You can take that. Um, <laughs> anything else you want to tease while you're here? Where, where can people find you? Where can they see your stuff? Et cetera, I mean, et cetera. At this point, I don't know where you can find me because, uh, you know, social media has uh, become a real uh, <laughs> yeah. fun. It's really just turned into a, a real interesting place. But, you know, I grew up in New York City in, um, in the 80s and the 90s. And, uh, you know, the experience of social media now is not dissimilar from riding a subway train um, in an outer borough in like 1989 <laughs> in terms of just, you know, you have really no idea what is going to be said, who is going right. to say it, how it's going to, um, how it's going to end up. It's, it's, it's a real crazy place. But for now I can be found on most social media platforms under uh, kid blue or just my name. Um, but you know, I'm not hard to find guys. You guys have found me multiple times today. Yes. And you've tried to hide and you're just not good at it. Noah. you need to get better at hiding. Yeah, it's true. I need to become less accessible. You need to to find your own striker. I love this. I love this thing about an algorithm, like pushing you down. If you're not, uh, uh, verified. (laughs) Yeah. If you don't pay the eight bucks a month. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, uh, this is great. I I need less eyeballs on me. I don't need more. In fact, I've like long toyed with the idea of just locking my account when it hit 50,000. And Mm -hmm. this kind of, this may have done it for me without having to lock it. Um, 
Yeah, I want to be as inaccessible as possible. So, <laughs> and I'm really enjoying the fucking nightmare circus that that Twitter has become. Honestly, I mean, oh it's yeah, just a, it's as long as I can still use it as a a tool for booking the show, um, <laughs> which I still can apparently. Um, then I'm fine with it. But well, you it's know. sort of it, the question is, is, is it really going to become sort of like the Facebook experience, which is just like the only reason that you would still have Facebook is because it is potentially a way you could find someone in a slightly less personal way than having their number. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like, mm-hmm. you know, if some random person like texts me or emails me, it's kind of like off-putting and sort of scary. But like if they yep. find me on social media, it's kind of like, well, you know, I'm I'm sort of standing on a street corner here. Like that's, right. that's okay. Yeah. Um, does it just become that? Which again is sort of fine. Like I kind of right. don't mind that. I can kind of you know choose to ignore that and um or or choose to engage. It's very possible that all this conversation will be extremely outdated by the time this airs because we're recording this about two weeks before it's going to run. And it seems like Twitter changes and Elon Musk changes what he's deciding to do with social media on the hour at this point. So so it's possible we will be you'll be listening to this and and Twitter will like sold to Peter Thiel or something. (laughs) So and uh, and it'll be very outdated. But just in case a uh, Gulf Western company. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yep, David Soul is going to buy Twitter. Nestle, you know that. Like that, my, my dream is that it just becomes part of like like a giant old school conglomerate where it's just you know it's like like Daiwu. Like we make blenders, we make cars, and yeah. we also make Twitter. Please to enjoy. <laughs> well, thank you very much uh, for being here today. Uh, to talk Salem's lot with us, Noah, and you know, congratulations on you know the uh, the reception to to blood relatives. Very well earned. Yes. Uh, well, thank you guys. I, I I really appreciate your support, and uh, and um, uh, I am always as a completist uh, happy to be here to talk anything King because uh, you know I have this albatross of a King collection that follows yes, me. Yes, yes, yes. We know about uh, your you impressive know, King collection. You know, not only do I have uh, a complete collection, but so many, many of which are uh, you know first editions <laughs> and uh, you know hard to find. Uh, paperbacks and you know i'm just saying it's just uh the kind of thing i like yeah Yeah. we've told you before you're not you're not good at hiding so all you're doing is making it more feasible for me to steal your your impressive collection and and, come over come over she's gonna get disappeared real quick yeah (laughs) well thank you so much for coming on the show even even uh when you're here to to brag about your awesome stephen king collection yes We, we do appreciate you being here well, uh, happy to brag <laughs> any day of the week, guys. <laughs> you know, to, to pull it all back, I, I, I am, I am like, uh, I am like a leprechaun, but instead of a <laughs> pot of gold, it's a pile of Stephen King books. <laughs> <laughs> all right, that's it. You're done. Yeah, get rid of me. All right, cut. That's it. Many thanks to our good friend Noah Segan for coming on, talking some vampire shit with us. We always appreciate it. Indeed, indeed, always and finishing out a duology that began previous week with uh jerusalem's lot i I know yeah unfortunately we are not uh, forward thinking enough to follow this up with uh one for the road or (laughs) or even the uh rob lowe salem's lot adaptation but uh we've noticed in the past when we've when we've uh lingered on a single 
title for too long. Uh, the natives get restless. The people yeah. weren't appreciative of our lawnmower man and lawnmower man two one two punch. Yeah, that stunt did not go over well. <laughs> <laughs> people were lawnmower lawnmower man the fuck out by the time we <laughs> were sure. all done with that little experiment. Yeah, so but, yeah, we are moving on to something new. Yes, yes, indeed. and it is a short story. So next week we will be talking about Grandma, the short story involving, and as you would imagine. A very upsetting grandmother. And our guest is uh, a newbie on the show. We're very excited to have this person on. I will say he is a character actor that Mm -hmm. uh, fans of Stephen King and fans of maybe a little show called Stranger Things, they might recognize this face, this Mm -hmm. voice. They're not going to recognize the face because this is an audio podcast. But you know what I mean. So, uh, yeah, no, we're we're very excited. Good guy. Very excited to have him on the show. Uh, And what's happening over on our Patreon this Friday, Scott? Well, we're going to be getting into some Dark Tower shit. Uh, I am not sure we have a specific angle on it other than getting into some Dark Tower shit. Mm. But uh, our guest is going to be um, Ryan Lambert, who uh, you may know as Rudy from the Monster Squad. Turns out he is a big Dark Tower nerd. And, uh, you know, I've never talked to... I've never talked to that guy. I'm I'm more than happy to have a conversation with him, and especially if it's going to be about Dark Tower shit. So uh, pretty excited about that one. It's funny. I got lambasted by him for not inviting him on the show sooner uh, <laughs> because he's uh, I've known known him off and on for 15 something years. And he messaged me essentially going, you know, I'm a big Dark Tower fan. I'm like, dude, I in all the times we've talked, I don't think we've ever talked about Dark Tower. How was I supposed to know? Yeah, he wasn't walking around, you know, reading a copy of song of Susanna or some shit. He doesn't have a dark tower caw tattoo or something. It's always a delight to talk dark tower shit. And I don't think we've done it for a hot minute. Although, um, we might be doing that again soon. Who knows? Yeah. You never know. In the main feed. You never know. You never know. I literally don't know. I don't know. Confirmed it yet. So, um, (laughs) yeah, it's inevitable. There's always going to be dark tower talk. Um, I do, I do know that, uh, even though we haven't got a specific angle with Ryan, uh, to talk about Dark Tower, we are honing in on drawing of the three in that area. So, oh, nice. So, uh, I figure that uh, you know that that's a popular title among us. It's that's one that uh, I think Scott and I are both very similar in that our favorite Dark Tower book kind of alternates between that and Wastelands, depending what mood we're in. So, yeah, and I think that's his favorite, and he just reread it, so it's very fresh on his mind. I don't know. It's just there's something in the air whenever you get Dark Tower nerds excitedly talking to each other about dark tower shit. And, uh, I expect to, uh, have that totally. in spades. We will know tomorrow. We are recording that episode tomorrow. When you're hearing this, we'll probably have just recorded that episode. And then we're uh, off to, uh, off to LA. Right. Week. Yes. And I hope to see some of you guys out at uh, season screamings in Pasadena. We will be moderating a panel this Saturday, uh, there called the legacy of the shining or the shining legacy, depending on which piece of advertisement you see. Uh, but it's going to be us moderating a panel with Mick Garris, Stephen Weber, Mike Flanagan, and Henry Thomas. Yes. Uh, maybe some others, maybe not. We shall see when we get there. Uh, like literally we don't know. There's been hints of maybe other people, not Jack Nicholson. We, we tried that dude's not returning anybody's phone calls. Yeah. Um, sadly. Uh, but yeah, no, it's going to be a good text, time. Where- frankly. What? It or my text. That Nicholson. He's not rude returning my motherfucker. Text. I know. It's, it's that dude really just upsetting shit. He, he's just too big for his britches. Too good for the little people, I guess. That's fine. 
but yes, yeah, so hope to see some of y'all over there. And yeah, in the meantime, we got our bonus episode covering some Dark Tower shit with Ryan Lambert hitting our Patreon this Friday. That's patreon.com slash the Kingcast, by the way. Go sign up. And uh, yeah, in the next week, we have a very fun actor coming in to talk about Grandma. Talk to you then, folks. Bye. The Kingcast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Ansley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director, and editing is done by yours truly. 